0: Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to uh, finish his dissertation and eventually to get a job. And continuing this season's uh, 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 list of of guests, we have uh, my colleague Kyle Jackson um, coming here uh, today. Uh, Kyle is a, a second year in the UC Berkeley History Department, Uh, uh, but he's not just a historian. Um, He is the impresario of the uh, 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 rap outfit, uh, Helix Skeletons Records. Um, uh, And also a a, a scholar of uh, 19th and 20th century America.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: Uh, and so, can you tell us a little bit about what your, your sort of stuff in history you're interested in? It's not skeletons, and it's not music. Uh, so, what are you interested in, and what what, what drove you to do this bad-paying, you know, career that we're that we're uh, uh, struggling through?
1: Right. Well, you know, I was living in Los Angeles. I went to UCLA for undergrad, and I was uh,
0: working on trying to get into the music business in one way, shape, or form. Okay. So that's, that's an even harder uh, (laughs) uh, business to break into than academia. Academia was the, was the plan B. Indeed. Yeah,
1: it actually was. Um, And I got to a certain point where I realized I didn't just want to be in the music industry. I wanted uh, just to be making the music that I care about. And I realized that that's a very difficult thing to make into your career. And so I figured I could continue to make the music I want if I find a way to uh, have another type of uh, career going on for me and one that would also give me a chance to continue
0: growing and develop intellectually and all that. So I decided to go to graduate school. You went to grad school to, to grow and develop intellectually. Yes. Well, Well, uh, uh, so what, what sort of stuff do you study? What sort of stuff do you work on?
1: All right. well, I've... Uh, become convinced that the
0: best way to introduce myself is as a transnational historian of the Americas. Whoa, whoa, whoa. that sounds really academic. A transnational historian of the Americas. What does that mean?
1: It means I'm interested in connections throughout the Western Hemisphere, most pressingly between the nations of Latin America and the United States. So I mostly focus on U.S. history and sort of, especially in the 19th century, Like early U.S. Latin American relations, which were a lot different than, say, 20th century.
0: So you talk about connections. What sort of things are 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 connecting? Like, is this political Mm. history? Are you looking at at trade or like music? Like, what sort? What's what's what are the the strings that are running between U.S. and Latin America that you're curious about?
1: Right. Well, mostly so far, it's been trade and commerce. I've been sort of the most uh, visible, tangible links. But uh, in the course of studying these sort of commercial relationships, these long distance trade networks, uh, there are numerous sort of political and social um, institutions that tie people uh, throughout the hemisphere together. There's all this military involvement. Um, You know, the United States funneling weaponry and uh supporting various revolutionary movements throughout the hemisphere
0: wait wait, that starts in the 19th century
1: oh yes i thought that was just like a story about in the 1950s like we've been doing Mm. it that long indeed indeed really all the way back to the independence wars uh in latin america and a lot of that was running out of uh louisiana and new orleans which is sort of the area of my greatest focus
0: okay so let's talk we're going to talk about one specific Story about the relations between US and Latin America, but I wanna foreground it with, with a little bit of, of exciting news. So this is gonna go out probably on February 12th, and on February 14th, the latest expansion for my nerdy, nerdy favorite game, Civilization six, is coming out. This expansion is called Gathering Storm, and amongst the many features that it adds to this world-building game, is that you can build canals, um, which does not. It, when you say it, it sounds really boring. But like, if you if you're a Civ Six fan, uh, you will know how exciting it is that you can now build canals. And what's even more exciting is that one of the canals that you can build is a world wonder. Uh, called the Panama Canal and I just kind of like I, I brought up the the uh, official description of the Panama Canal uh, for us today it it, ha- it's a, it has to be built on flat land um, and it in the game in the game right it provides an extra canal so instead of just connecting uh, 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 a, a, an isthmus of, of one land tile it can connect two um, and it provide uh, provides extra gold to all trade routes running through it. Uh, if you are a nerd like me about Civ 6, this has gotten you very excited. But I thought that this would be a really great opportunity to talk about the real Panama Canal. So uh let's start off. Can you can you tell me like why like people in the 19th century, it seems to me, are as excited about these big canal projects as I am about this fake canal project and this dumb video game I play. But today we don't really care about canals. They seem kind of boring. Tell me what what's, what's the big deal of canal mania in the 19th century?
1: Well, of course, the entire New World Project was premised on the idea of connecting Europe with Asia and the markets of East Asia.
0: Oh, yeah. That's what they were trying to do like back in like Columbus. Like he wasn't trying to get to America. He was trying to get to Asia.
1: And when they realized that there was a continent in the way, uh, it became a long term dream and a project to find a way to make it easier for ships to get all the way to the east. And when it became clear that there was a narrow isthmus uh, between the two oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific, uh, it became a long term dream of... Um, even really dating back to the Spanish colonial period, but um, all throughout sort of the 18th century. And then by the 19th century, you're starting to have canal building projects in Europe and in North America that are making it seem more and more plausible that you could actually
0: construct a waterway across land. So let's talk about, there's this narrow isthmus, like how narrow and and what what does that mean? Like if you're on one side, can you see the other side? Like no, it's not that narrow. Okay, it's not that narrow. Something like
1: like 150 miles, I think. Okay, okay. Um, But there, you know, it wasn't always clear that the canal, if they wanted to build one, was going to be in Panama. um, Although it is the narrowest strip of the isthmus, but there were other proposed routes across Tehuantepec, which is a region in Mexico, sort of at the narrowest point of Mexico. Um, There was thoughts that you could do it across Nicaragua because there's a gigantic lake that takes up about half of the country, so you'd only have to build half the canal. Yeah. Um, so there were all these different visions, plans. There's another one uh, proposed project at the Isthmus of Darien.
0: Oh, yeah. The, Dar- the, the Darien, uh, uh, attentive listeners to the podcast might remember Darien um, from the numerous failed Scottish colonies that went to Darien over and over again to die. <laughs> Indeed.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in a world that was pretty much completely dominated by maritime trade, uh it was obviously going to be beneficial if they were going to find a way to make it easier for ships to not have to go all the way around South America in order yeah. to get to Asia so
0: what are why do they want to get to Asia like isn't getting ships to America enough like what's the big deal? Well, the markets of the East uh,
1: were always very much sought after in Europe because of their access to sort of uh, Special resources like silks and teas and things that weren't necessarily available in other parts of the world. Um, and there's this transoceanic uh, silver network that's going on. The Spanish are sending the silver that they're mining in Mexico and in the Andes all the way over to the Philippines, which they control as a colony. And then these.
0: Even in the 19th century. Are they? Are they doing? Because my like when I think of that big silver network, for me, it's a a story of the of the seventeenth century that you get this beating heart of silver that goes from uh Potosi up to Spain and then from there to China. But there's still that that big heartbeat of silver is still pumping.
1: Ah, I mean the silver by the nineteenth century has almost all been sort of exhausted in the Americas, so it's not quite the same. First of all, it's not quite the same mercantilist moment, right? Not, they're not so obsessed with keeping all of the silver and gold circulating within the Spanish realm. Yeah. Um, but also, I think, as far as I know, um, mo- most of those mines had sort of run their course. And I'm not really sure what's going on in the Philippines by the turn of the 19th century. It's yeah.
0: But so, so, So there's a lot of economics reason to get boats from Europe to... Asia through the Americas. And then it seems like it's now possible. You said that there were some antecedents for it. Tell me about those antecedents. Like, why did people start to think that that making this big, you know, artificial river through a continent was possible? Well, it started out as sort of a really arduous overland
1: process. They would, you know, pull into port on the Pacific or the Atlantic coast of the isthmus and then carry it by like mule train. Oh, man. Or, like physically over the land. And well,
0: I guess it's quicker than going around South it's quicker, America and going it, into, you know, that I, the Cape of Good Hope, right? Is that is Is that the, the, the South American thing, mm-hmm. which I think has icebergs, right? It does. So better, better, better an overland route than icebergs. Yeah, but,
1: you know, it really depends on how much, uh, what kind of goods you're trying to transport, right? And so uh, at a certain point that becomes not very practical if you're... Uh, dealing with large volume goods. Um, So then when, you know, so even by like the 1820s, people are starting to think about, you know, how could we apply these new canal building technologies? You know, the Erie Canal is completely what, 1820, I believe, uh, up in in North America. And so there's canal projects that are all sort of flourishing uh, in Europe and the Americas. And they thought, well, maybe we can use this process uh, across this isthmus that people have been dreaming since the time of Columbus, essentially.
0: And is is this like the world's biggest canal project? Is this like the big one, or is are, are there other canals that are as equally like like like, like important? Was this the grade A Canal? <laughs> well, the
1: other uh, you know the other way to get to the east from Europe is through the Middle East, right? Yeah. So the uh, other Canal that is actually built before the Panama Canal later in the 19th century in the 1870s is the Suez Canal
0: Oh, yeah built in e- Egypt by the French and then stolen by the British Exactly. Yeah, uh, so uh, the, the Suez Canal comes first and does it uh, uh, Do the people who are looking at the Panama Canal. Did they get you know? Inspiration from this or, or yeah, well, they're
1: inspired first of all like okay. We can do this We can build a huge canal Um, But also it places an economic pressure because it's like, oh geez, now the British have this privileged access to the Eastern markets. So if actors in the Western hemisphere, aka the United States and the Latin American republics want to tap into the Eastern markets. They need oh. to build a canal essentially to counter the Suez Canal.
0: Oh, wow. So once the Suez Canal gets open, Britain, which already has a massive naval infrastructure and has a natural advantage in, 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 in naval trade because of its massive coal stores, uh, it can get to the markets in the East much uh, more efficiently. And so the, you know, the, 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 the boosters in America uh, need a canal to open up that trade absolutely but, but i'm confused We're, this is a 19th century story like but wasn't the canal made in like 1914 like what takes him so long like yeah. the french could build a canal in 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 uh, uh the 19th century what happened in, to the panama canal
1: right well the french tried to build a canal in panama they sent the same guy de lesseps the uh engineer who had uh, been at the forefront of the suez canal project He goes to Panama, Uh, they get a concession from the Panamanian, or the Colombian government, because at that time uh, Panama was part of Colombia. Um, And so they start building the canal, they wind up getting about 40% of the way done with the product which that's is not that, it's that's not
0: bad yeah they said i mean no. just imagine looking at that like you said it's 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 hundreds of miles it's like 150 miles I across so, and yeah. so they have like a gigantic ditch deep enough for ships to go through
1: right 40 of the way and they've shipped you know uh, millions of dollars worth of equipment heavy engineering construction stuff um but the main there are two main problems that sort of plague the french project a financial as you would imagine. It's, yeah
0: complicated difficult these companies that are sort of private slash public ventures go bankrupt they're having more and more uh, difficulty funding it over
1: time but also the main problem is all the laborers keep dying because of yellow fever all these Frenchmen especially are very vulnerable they have no immunities to yellow fever and they just drop like
0: flies so so what yellow fever like this is something that I've read about in 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 uh, 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 stories of imperialism in the nineteenth century. There just seems like to be a really big death toll from white people trying to colonize tropical places in the nineteenth century. What is yellow fever, and like why do they? Why don't they do something about it?
1: Right. Well, uh, it's a mosquito-borne uh, illness that can kill you, and often does. Uh, but it was brought over actually in the. Uh, slave ships from africa it's oh indigenous to uh, africa not the americas yeah and so it was brought over really by the 16th century to the caribbean and um much of the sort of tropical regions of latin america uh and it particularly uh affects people who weren't born in the colony or weren't born in the mm-hmm. americas because um children who will be bitten by the infected mosquitoes will develop immunity to it oh. so people who are grew up in the Americas wouldn't necessarily have died from because they might have already developed immunity, but people who are coming straight from France or straight from Spain, they would die practically anytime the wet season came and mosquitoes were born. And as you say, what is, you know, how, why didn't they figure it out? Well, they didn't understand germs and they definitely didn't understand that mosquitoes carried diseases.
0: Oh, so they didn't, they just thought, what do they think? What do they think caused yellow fever? Like, they thought miasmas,
1: you know, very sort of early modern um, scientific pseudoscience vibes. You know, they thought that, you know, just like the wetness in moisture in the air or something, but they didn't understand, A, that the sugar plantations that were ubiquitous made everything worse because the cisterns on the plantations, would have these uh, sugary resins that were attracted to the mosquitoes, um, and still water developed in these cities, and uh, or would be just chilling in these cities, and mosquitoes would harvest their eggs.
0: Yeah, I remember reading some research that in uh, Louisiana, yellow fever followed uh, sugar plantations yeah. because to get sugar, you need to irrigate everything, and that irrigation process is just like disneyland for mosquitoes and so you would have new land being opened up for sugar plantations working on a sugar plantation is probably like the worst of all of the plantation agriculture like i'd rather be on a cotton plantation than a sugar plantation is my understanding like you just die just hard work with machetes and the, like is this your is this your understanding too it's like it's real bad yeah. Of all the real bad ways to work <laughs> on a farm a sugar plantation is real bad and so you have people who are like biologically compromised already and then like the mosquitoes come so like mosquito yellow fever follows sugar
1: Yeah, to a certain extent, yeah.
0: Okay, so you have a situation where you have this beautiful isthmus of land that they're starting to build a canal on. Mm -hmm. Everybody dies. Yes. Then what happens? Including the lead architect. He dies of yellow fever?
1: I want to say yes, but I'm not 100% sure.
0: But he dies. (laughs) Yeah. He dies. Yeah, yeah. That sucks.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: At 40%. Yeah.
1: And so the French um, essentially don't have the funds to continue the project. The engineer is gone, and they sort of basically abandon it, but they don't get rid of any of the equipment because it's too expensive to ship back across the ocean. They just leave it there. (laughs) And so it's just basically hanging out in Panama uh, uncompleted for like about a decade or more. Uh, Meanwhile, the people in the United States, businessmen, investors, and to a lesser extent or actually i guess to a greater extent people in congress especially these advocates of the gulf coast who imagine a sort of new uh
0: global commercial network um what, 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 what are we talking about here is this is this pre-civil War, post-civil War? this is post-war Civil this is sort okay. of the
1: 1880s 1890s the uh canal project really gets revived in the american imagination they uh, have like a first sort of congress about Planning for a canal, in, I think 1879, mm-hmm. and then sort of the early 1880s. There's all these meetings, congressional hearings. They,
0: you know, they set up a committee to investigate which route would be the best. So this is after Reconstruction, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the, you. You have this moment where the South has been, uh, you know economically shat upon for a while right and so people are now trying to uh, uh, imagine what the economic basis of the south is going to be am am i i'm an outsider here like is that is that correct yeah no absolutely and what they see is an answer is a big canal
1: yeah well there's sort of the two routes that people in the south are thinking are our chance to get back and and be a major part of the american economy we can either ramp up our industrialism and sort of match what's going on in the northeast and to a certain extent a lot of places within the south do you know build more factories get involved in sort of textile manufacturing because the south's like lifeblood at this time still is cotton
0: yeah i mean they make the cut co- like why it doesn't make sense to ship the cotton to burton or to 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 poughkeepsie when you can just build it absolutely and
1: but the then world. for uh port cities especially on the gulf coast they're The hope was that they could also tap into this um, burgeoning global trade that's starting to really uh, take off with the advent of steamships that are starting to proliferate and make much longer and much higher volume uh, trade possible.
0: Oh yeah, because steamships are so much faster and because they don't rely on wind, they can have much more regular routes and they can go to much further places, which makes a place like New Orleans uh, open up to a very different uh, uh, face of the world. W- b- before that, was New Orleans like mostly internal trade or just around the Caribbean? Well, it's an
1: interesting question because they had always imagined themselves as we have the we're the gateway to the Americas. We have the best possibility to sort of tap into these Latin American markets. But they never really uh, do what it takes to tap into them properly. They want it to be the Miami
0: of the, of the 19th century.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and one of the main reasons to bring it back to yellow fever is because there's this quarantine system starting in the 1870s because of yellow fever. Because New Orleans, as part of the Gulf of Mexico, has a lot of – and as a relatively swampy place, has a lot of yellow fever problems.
0: You know, that's actually kind of my naive imagination of New Orleans is just swampy and like vaguely malarial. And so, people, who who's doing the quarantine? Is it, it, it does New Orleans uh, uh, do the quarantine itself, or is it like the federal government that goes, "You guys, you, you, you swampy folks, you ha- you can't you can't do any. You, you, you got to stay there." From what I understand, it was essentially a self-imposed quarantine. Okay. And so that's limiting yes, uh, its growth. And it's, is it limiting the dreams of the canal in the 1880s as well?
1: Uh, well, certainly it's limiting New Orleans's ability to develop regular uh, international trade. Because for basically six months of the year, it's closed for business. Oh. So ships coming from Cuba, coming from Brazil, can't stop in New Orleans because the fear is that then they'll be infected with yellow fever. I bet
0: it didn't work, the quarantine. Did it?
1: Uh, it worked in terms of it stymied New Orleans' trade ambitions for decades.
0: <laughs> but did it work in preventing yellow fever?
1: No. <laughs> no, they had really bad uh, outbreaks of it multiple times. So because the, they didn't understand that it was the mosquitoes. The yeah, they thought maybe it was coming. In, you know, they thought
0: it was the ships, coast. and instead it was the sugar plantations. Indeed. So at this point in the story, I feel like the the canal is never going to get built. What happens to make it uh, start to become a reality? Right. So there's all
1: these American senators and congressmen, most uh, famously John Tyler Morgan, who's from a different uh, Gulf port there in Mobile, Alabama, uh, start really uh, putting pressure on the United States Congress to actually back one of these plans Um, It's part of this larger moment by the 1880s and 1890s where the United States is getting more involved in trying to, you know, so-called capture the markets of both the Caribbean and uh, East Asia. They want to get, uh, you know, sort of tap into Japanese industrial productivity. Um, They see themselves as possibly being able to, you know, there's this vision of an open door uh, relationship with China so they can try to maximize uh, some sort of a trade relationship there. Yeah,
0: because at this point in time, uh, America's forced to open the Japanese economy of the world and Japan is rapidly industrializing and a lot of the European powers are deeply involved in in the treaty port system in China, which is basically taking a couple system, uh, a couple cities And, uh, using them to funnel trades of of valuable goods from China to the rest of the world. So there's a big gigantic open pot of, 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 stuff and America wants to, to, to get its hands into that open pot. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, there's not necessarily any reason it couldn't have been, uh, you know, the Americans couldn't have started building the canal in say 1890, but, uh, it just it's the way anything works in Washington it takes a decade to just pick the route essentially there's all these committees and Subcommittees being launched to investigate. There's a lot of. Wait, why don't they just use the 40% completed thing? Like, why would right? they want
0: to choose a different route?
1: It all had to do with the concessions and the contracts that the governments were willing to give. And this is a good reminder. because well,
0: yeah, it's not built in America. It's built right. in, yeah, and in and Panama. This,
1: and this is a good reminder that the United States is not yet the sort of hemispheric hegemon that we associate with the 20th century. They don't have the power necessarily to dictate terms in latin american sovereign republics Hmm. so their basic calculation is the nicaragua route seems promising because a it's got this giant lake so we only have to build half the canal so the sort of 40 percent completion advantage isn't that much of an advantage yeah because the lake is just there plus they're getting more favorable deal from the nicaraguan government Hmm. who is basically saying you can do whatever you want you can have full control over the canal we're not going to Uh, demand much of a sort of commission on commerce passing through it Um, please please come here and develop our country but then there's so a lot of americans are eager to do so and the nicaragua route is actually the preferred route uh, for a lot of the 1880s and 1890s really across the country Hmm. Um, but there's all these sort of political turmoil problems in nicaragua Um, the concession is revoked and Basically, they're dragging their feet the whole time throughout the 1890s while the, uh, there are lobbyists in the United States, especially in New York City, who are really pushing for the Panama route because um, the difference in distance between Panama and New York versus uh, Nicaragua and New York, basically the Panama route preserves New York's advantage over these Gulf ports, which otherwise would get a leg up.
0: Oh, so if they would have chose the Nicaragua canal, then the Gulf ports like New Orleans would have had a a, a much clearer uh, 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 Path forward to exactly. get to the canal, but the Panama Canal means that the number one port will still be New York. Exactly. Okay, so this, you know, what's funny about this is that it seems like there's still that, that this is the story of American history Everything takes a really long time in Congress and eventually New York financiers win.
1: Yeah, pretty much and you know, it's also important to mention that you know if the railroads uh, in general are trying to preserve this sort of San Francisco, Chicago, New York uh, mm-hmm. transatlantic pathway, and the ports of the South are trying to reroute those patterns through their uh, through their harbors in order to get a slice of that action.
0: So, how does the Panama P- Canal actually get built once they've made the decision to build it and build it in Panama?
1: Right. Uh, Well, there is a coup that happens on the Isthmus itself um, that sort of is launched under suspicious circumstances. It's an independence movement technically to break away from Colombia. Uh, There is uh, some debate about how involved the United States was. But they certainly didn't do anything to stop it, and they did in fact send a ship to prevent anyone from interfering. Okay. Uh, you know, so they send a U.S. battleship to basically blockade the port and prevent anyone from interfering. Um, so the U.S. tacitly or not so tacitly uh, supports this independence movement, and then independence in, with quotes right, around, independence it. with quotes right. around, and I mean, I believe the guy who becomes the first president of Panama is one of the french engineers who was involved in the the canal project.
0: Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Okay. So you can tell what what the big goal of that independence movement yeah. is. And independence and then and, you know, parentheses and a and a canal.
1: Yeah, and the first basic action of the new independent government is to grant a basically lifetime concession to the United States to control the canal and 6 miles on either side uh as part of U.S. territory. Oh wow! So the Panama Canal Zone is created as an overseas territory of the United States.
0: Is it still an overseas territory of the? United no, States?
1: that ended in the eighteen. I mean the nineteen seventies.
0: Okay. Okay. So but still, I mean. 75 yeah, that's that's years. crazy. That's seventy five years where 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 six miles of, of 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 this isthmus is controlled by the U.S. So so they get the land. Then is it a simple process of just doing the other 60% or are there any bumps along the way? Right. Well, the two
1: things that really make it uh, feasible is A, and this is also the other main reason why they go with the Panama route, is they are able to buy all the French equipment for a really cheap bargain deal. Yeah. Like that was the big stumbling block to just finishing the Panama project in the first place. They didn't want to have to pay for all this obsolete equipment. But then once they got a better deal on it, they're like, well, we might as well. Yeah. Um, and then the second problem, which is the same as the 19th century problem, is the yellow fever, right?
0: Oh, yeah. People keep, do they know about mosquitoes at, at this point?
1: They learned right at the moment that the Panama Canal uh, zone is, you know, granted as a concession in the United States, like literally like that year, the year before, the year after, they developed the mosquito theory of uh, yellow fever transmission. And not so ironically or not so coincidentally,
0: it happens in New Orleans. That's where they. Okay. Uh, to make the discovery, and do people actually believe them? Because you know, at least my understanding of a lot of these medical breakthroughs is, is that even though you have this moment of discovery, it takes people a long time to actually start to believe it. You know, where the, with with cholera, um, John Snow is famous for identifying that it spread through contaminated water, mm. uh, but it took a full generation for pe- for people. To stop believing that, that, that smart people, educated people, scientists and medical people, to stop believing that it was spread by miasmas. So, but you're saying that like, these people in New Orleans are, are figuring out that, that mosquitoes can spread yellow fever, and there's such a demand, such a need, that they actually start to implement mosquito control uh, uh, yeah. uh, solutions.
1: Well And the key is that it proves immediately almost 100 percent effective. So, oh. everywhere that they do these mosquito eradication programs, yeah. which are actually, I believe, sort of under the auspices of the Army Corps of Engineers, so oh, wow. it's kind of a federally sponsored initiative, it, it, it has like extremely dramatic results and they're able to like wipe it out really quickly, like within one or two years of them figuring out that it's mosquitoes, they're able to like make yellow fever essentially vanish from a lot of places
0: in the Caribbean. Oh wow, so the proof is in the pudding, you yes. eradicate the mosquitoes, the yellow fever goes away. Yes. And bonus, no more mosquitoes. Indeed. The only animal that it would be completely fine if it just went extinct. Uh, I don't uh, know how mosquitoes. the bats would feel about that. Well, you know, they can, you know. They can eat flies. I, I'm, I'm willing for a couple bat species to go <laughs> extinct if we if we didn't have any mosquitoes. So they, 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 they solve the land problem. They get cheap equipment and they just stumble across a solution to the death problem. And then, is it just like how long does it take after that happens to get this canal actually opened up? It takes 11 years from the time
1: the United States is uh, formally granted the concession. So they start construction or restart construction in 1903, and the canal is finally open for business in 1914.
0: Wow, that makes me feel better about doing stuff in my games in Civilization 6 because it takes a long time <laughs> to build wonders. It's yeah, so equivalent of, to like 25 <laughs> turns. Yeah, it's like 20 which is which is about the same uh, how long it will take to build the Panama Canal in the game. So it takes 11 years. Now, let's talk about how this affects uh 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 the south uh, in America. So, part of the story that you have been telling me is that one of the reasons why people want to open up the Panama Canal uh, or some sort of canal is that it will help the South reorient its economy. Um, And you have a particular interest here in people in New Orleans. So when it becomes clear in 1903 that it's not going to be Nicaragua, what do they do and how do they imagine that uh, uh, the Panama Canal is going to serve them are they just bitter and disappointed or do they try to like finagle their way into like making it making it work for them
1: yeah they basically you know they take their l and decide to that they're still well we're still the closest major port to all these ports in latin america we still have a geographic advantage their whole sort of uh, vision is predicated on we are at the mouth of the breadbasket of the world, really, at this point. I mean, the Mississippi Valley is one of the most agriculturally productive regions on the planet. Yeah, they're still there. making a ton of cotton. Yeah, yeah, but also other things as well
0: sugar and,
1: yeah, tobacco. but also wheat and lumber. And, okay. Uh, there's even coal coming uh, down the river and so So it's part of this larger vision of we need to, A, revive the river trade that's going to send us all these goods from the Mississippi Valley that currently are being shipped. Or via or, railroad Via railroad yeah. Through Chicago Basically St. Louis and Chicago Are eating New Orleans' lunch Yeah And New Orleans is like No we need to get everything Flowing back to the river Turns out that wasn't A very realistic idea Because
0: railroads are A lot easier to use Than a winding river Yeah they, and they don't flood Exactly. You don't have snacks. You sure. don't. You know. You don't need you. You know. ill locomotive engineer is a, is a skilled trade, but a, a person plying a steamship on the Mississippi is, you know, more of more an artist than a scientist.
1: Absolutely. So their hope is all right. Well, we still have this sort of geographic advantage. We're at the mouth of the river. We're at the top of the Gulf of Mexico, um, and the hope is that when the canal opens. All of the sort of through traffic, all these steamships that are going to be crossing the oceans will have to stop somewhere. Yeah, and we want that place to be New Orleans. And New yellow now without mosquitoes. Now without yellow fever. Yeah. Exactly, um, and it's also part of this moment where the United States, in general, is trying to uh, fulfill what it perceives to be its destiny as a hemispheric hegemon. They say, mm. you know. We, you know, proclaimed in 1823 with the Monroe Doctrine that, you know, the Western Hemisphere belongs to us, all European powers stay out. But throughout the 19th century, Europe and especially the British dominate all of Latin American trade um, really pretty handily. And so by the time we're getting to the 1890s, there's a feeling and an optimism in the United States that... Perhaps we can reverse our fortunes. We can build our own fleet of steamships because, like, you know, something like 75% or more of all the sort of oceanic trade is being carried in European vessels, even from American ports. Probably British. Yeah, mostly yeah. British. Yeah. Um, but even in, they're also starting to get worried about the fact that Germans and Japanese, both commercial firms and financial firms, are getting involved in Latin America. Hmm. And so there's this feeling that. United States needs to make moves here if they don't want to get aced out by the rest of the world. And does it work? <laughs> it's a tricky question. It does, but mainly because the opening of the canal coincides with the outbreak of World War
0: One. Oh. So they're 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 trying all these things to outmaneuver the Germans and the Japanese and the British. And then World War One happens and they outmaneuver themselves. Basically. Yeah yeah so, so when we think about this I, I I wonder like what's what's the big story that you're getting out of this you're, you're spending all this time thinking about these canals and this really like like what's what what how does that matter like what's like the, the real big takeaway
1: yeah I mean it's obviously what I'm still trying to figure out because yeah. hopefully it will in some way uh, relate to an eventual dissertation but my sense is that you know, if we're interested in general in the biggest sense of how we get to a world of globalization like that we like to talk about in the 20th and 21st centuries, sort of what are the origins of that? How did that develop? How does sort of geography, infrastructure, militarization, economic uh, imperialism, if you want to call it that, or um, overseas finance... Effect, yeah, because
0: sort of. when we think about globalization, it's just kind of flat, like we don't think of it as being, uh, uh, being channeled by historical currents. We don't think of it as, 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 as having anything unfair about it, right? Like, mm-hmm. Or at least it's harder to think about it as... So you're, you're looking at... You think that this can show kind of the, the material preconditions of, of 20th century globalization
1: yeah, hopefully maybe. Um, I think also I'm just sort of interested in you know the us's influence around the world and sort of a, the lack of influence or perceived lack of influence in the nineteenth century, sort of how that situation begins to change, how they sort of displace Great Britain from its global empire, and you know how you wind up with the United States as a superpower by the m- mid twentieth century. It doesn't just happen overnight because of two world wars. Those are the big ones, yeah. but there's a lot of other factors and a lot of sort of long-standing relationships that sort of lead to that, that that I'm sort of interested in um, and sort of considering the longer history of what some historians call imperialism.
0: Well, for me, one of the cool things about this story that you've told me um, is that it brings in so many non-human actors in a really clear way. You don't just have, uh, you know, back in the 50s or the 1850s, we might tell these stories about uh, uh, as stories about really heroic engineers doing really heroic projects and doing really amazing work. And that's true. But we also get in the story uh, these Big effects of 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 mosquitoes limiting the, the 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 realm of activity, and of new kinds of technologies uh, that allow people to kind of extend their power beyond what was possible before. Like I bet you can't get these big canal building projects without one of my pet interests, which is gunpowder. You know you can't you know you can't dig a mile you know a, a, a hundred and fifty mile ditch through a continent with a pickaxe you can't even dig it with a steam drill probably need to blow stuff up so it's a story it's you you can you can really see in this story that not not only do you have the political stuff not only do you have the economic stuff not only do you have the technological stuff but there's a lot of non-humans that are really jostling to be seen in this and what i like about your story is that you're showing us what those non-humans are doing as well
1: yeah absolutely and i think. You know, especially and you bring up gunpowder, you know, when we think about sort of what we have come to call geopolitics in the sort of literal sense of like strategic access to waterways and pipelines. And this is sort of the first moment where the technology um, and the sort of globe spanning trade networks are both of the variety that make like real geopolitics in with a capital G kind of possible.
0: Yeah. Not that I... Well and everybody's trying to play the same game like like everybody's trying to be Britain which has these massive networks of of, of ships going back and forth and which needs massive networks of naval outposts to get those ships coal and mm-hmm. water and food and to you know uh, uh, and, and maintenance. And everybody's trying to play the game that Britain's playing to various extents.
1: Yeah. And the United States, you know, in the same period, and especially starting in the 1890s, there's this, you know, what they call the New Navy moment where they're trying to build bigger and better battleships to sort of uh, both counter the British, but also extend U.S. influence overseas. And then you see the development of what they call gunboat diplomacy, where they just send big battleships to ports to blockade and get their way in various weaker uh, Latin American nations like
0: Panama like this Panama, independence or in
1: Venezuela or I mean basically
0: everywhere else in the Caribbean well thanks very much for coming uh, on on the the show uh, Kyle if, if people want to know more about you can they go to anywhere on the internet
1: yeah uh if you're interested in my music um you could check out uh on iTunes or Apple Music Spotify and stuff you can look up my band BlazeWave or uh, my solo project is Navocado, N-A-H-V-O C-A-D-O, which like, is also my Instagram. Like no avocado? Like, nah. Nah, avocado. Yeah, yeah. So you can check that out. Um, don't really have like
0: an academic bio page up yet. Check out Navocado and Blaze Wave. Yeah. Okay, if you want to learn more, do you have any songs about the Panama Canal? Or Mosquitoes? Uh, you know, I, I pepper my, uh, my raps
1: with historical references let's say that
0: okay do you have a track that, 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 that folks should should uh, uh, hear if they want to uh, get a particularly peppered song
1: yeah there's one on my most recent album called Revisionist History so okay Revisionist
0: History it's for all the revisionists out there <laughs> great well uh, uh, we'll be back next week uh, with uh, I think a podcast about Royal Babies uh, speak to you now.